Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Welcome to the Douglas and Sarah Allison Auditorium, to be specific. My name is Kim Holmes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Heritage Foundation. We are very excited about today's event. Uh, before we get started, as a courtesy to our speakers, I would like to ask everyone to do a final check to make sure that your mobile devices are either silenced or turned off. And also there's uh, one program note. Uh, following Senator Kyle's remarks, there will be an opportunity to ask a few questions. And there will also be a reception in the Allison foyer. And I'm also told, uh, Jim, are you here? Chief Carafano? Yep. Yeah, there is uh, copies of the uh, Defense Commission out in the auditorium of, uh, with the index of the military strength from the Heritage Foundation. So please, as you're on the way out, you can get a couple of copies of those. Uh, the Heritage Foundation partners with the Marine Corps University Foundation to host the Colonel James D. McGinley Lecture, and each year it features a distinguished speaker uh, from the national security arena. And this year we are pleased to welcome Senator John Kyle, who will be speaking on the national security crisis. Now, given Senator Kyle's uh, long expertise on national security affairs and his recent work on the National Defense Strategy Commission that I just mentioned, and the wide variety of emerging security challenges that is facing the United States, his remarks to us for the 2018 McGinley Lecture could not be more timely. We extend a warm welcome uh, to Senator Kyle uh, for participating uh, with us, also to Colonel James McGinley for his support for the lecture series, and also Lieutenant General Richard Mills of the Marine Corps University Foundation. We thank all of them for their partnership in co-hosting this event with the Heritage Foundation. I'd like to start off our event by introducing Lieutenant General Richard Mills, the U.S. Marine Corps, retired. He has been President and CEO of the Marine Corps University Foundation since 2015. Uh, Marine Corps University Foundation is a nonprofit organization that was created to enhance and to enrich the Marine Corps' professional military education and leadership efforts. For more than 35 years, uh, the MCUF has harnessed the power of the private sector in support for the Marine Corps' most pressing educational needs. General Mills retired after a long and distinguished career, a 40-year career in the Marine Corps, serving both important staff and combat positions. He led Marines in Bosnia and Somalia, Kosovo, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and was the first Marine Corps officer to lead the NATO forces in combat. So please join me in welcoming General Mills to the podium. Jim, thank you very much for that, uh, those very kind, uh, kind words. Every time you hear your career summarized like that, you look for a body out here in front of the stage or something. But, uh, not this afternoon, anyway. Anyway, I am, in fact, uh, Lieutenant General Rich Mills, the President and Chief Executive Officer of the uh, Marine Corps University Foundation. And on behalf of the Foundation and on the Heritage uh, Foundation, I want to welcome each and every one of you to our this afternoon's presentation. Uh, the Marine Corps University Foundation, as Kim said, our motto is educating 21st century leaders and warfighters. Our mission is to enhance and enrich the professional military education and leadership development of active duty Marines, both officers and enlisted, at the campus at Quantico and at outlying sites throughout the Corps. 
In addition to lectures such as the McGinley Lecture, uh, we help sponsor 10 endowed chairs to the university's faculty. We sponsor seminars, awards, staff rides, and provide operational support to the president of the university. It's been our privilege over the last five years to partner with the Heritage Foundation for the McGinley Lecture Series. Over the years, it has brought distinguished speakers to address critical uh, current issues of vital concern to national security. The talks have always generated some spirited and interesting discussions and questions afterwards, and I uh, anticipate no less uh, this afternoon. Today, I have the unique pleasure of introducing not only our host for the event, but the individual who is responsible for bringing this lecture series together and for whom the event is named, Colonel James Bullet McGinley. Aviators have the coolest call signs, i got to tell you. <laughs> he has spent his entire professional life protecting American interests both at home and abroad. He is a 30-year Marine officer who served his country in both war and peace in numerous positions of high responsibility. I first ran into Colonel McGinley in Iraq in 2008. He served in Baghdad. He was the deputy commander and the chief of staff for the Iraqi Assistance Group. I was out in El Alambar province. He would come out and visit us on more than one occasion. We served again later in Central Command in 2010, where he was the deputy commander for Strike Group 5. He was in the waters off of the Gulf. He was supporting us ashore while I was in Afghanistan. Now, the more I think about it, every time I get around bullet, someone's shooting at us. <laughs> so I hope this crowd's a little bit more pleasant today than what we've had to address in the past. But I'm not worried about y'all. Okay, his skill as a Marine aviator is noteworthy. He flies heavy lift helicopters. And his accomplishments in command and on staff is matched by only by his legal prowess as well. During his legal career, he carved out a distinguished career, protecting individuals from fraud and bad practice in the medical field, and in fact was featured in a Time magazine cover story for his accomplishments in that area. And he's not to be outdone, however, by his extraordinarily talented wife, Mary Beth, who's in the crowd this afternoon. Uh, she is uh, a force to be reckoned with in the entertainment world for her artistic talents and her business acumen. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to introduce to you the namesake and sponsor of today's lecture, Colonel James D. McGinley, United States Marine Corps retired. General, thank you for those kind words. They really are very much appreciated. Uh, the place that you'll always find General Mills is out front. Uh, when, when he leads in combat, he means to lead. And uh, it doesn't matter if it's a little bit dangerous or a little bit of a bad neighborhood, that's where he'll be. Um, in my transition, though, I, I do have the distinct privilege of introducing Senator uh, John Kyle, our uh, speaker for tonight's lecture. Senator Kyle has a long and distinguished career in public service, both in the House of Representatives and the United States Senate. He's currently uh, completing the late John McCain's term as senator from Arizona after being appointed by the governor back in September. Importantly, through the years, Senator Kyle has been a strong and consistent advocate for a robust national defense. A graduate of University of Arizona, he earned both his bachelor's and law degree there before practicing law in the private sector for almost 30 years. Senator Kyle entered public service as a member of the House of Representatives back in 1987. He served as a congressman for eight years before successfully running for the United States Senate to represent Arizona in 1994. He served for 18 years and was elected Senate Minority Whip unanimously in 2007, a position that he held until his retirement in 2013. Recently, Senator Kyle was appointed to serve as a member of the National Defense Strategy Commission. The commission took a very frank look at critical defense issues like resourcing priorities, uh, timely and consistent funding, addressing long-term fiscal challenges, and embracing a whole-of-government approach to strategic competition. The bipartisan effort provided some important conclusions about the U.S. military and its ability to defeat our potential adversaries in the future. That's why we've invited him to speak here today. Please join me in welcoming Senator John Kyle. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
Thank you to uh, the Heritage Foundation and the Marine Corps University Foundation for your kind invitation today, and especially, uh, Colonel, your leadership in not only helping to educate our Marines, but a much broader audience than that, uh, and for your continued service to the nation in that regard. If any of you were doing the math, I'll have one little confession, actually. The practice of law in the private sector was for 18 years before I was elected to the House of Representatives, not 30, where I'd be a lot older than, I'd be, I'd be about as old as I feel right now. <laughs> um, this was a really unique experience to be in the private sector and have uh, my then-Senator John McCain appoint me to the Defense Strategy Commission. This was a commission authorized by the previous year's National uh, Defense Act for the purpose of advising the Secretary of Defense on the creation of the defense, National Defense Strategy. The commission was set up by the Congress to have 12 members, three appointed by the Chairman of the Senate Committee, three appointed by the ranking member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, three by the Chairman of the House Committee, and three by the ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee. So there were six appointees by Democrats and six appointees of Republicans. It was an evenly balanced commission, and I think the most extraordinary thing about our work was that nonetheless in Washington, D.C., that group of 12 Democrats and Republicans reached a consensus, a unanimous consensus on our recommendations. And that's really important because there are some battles that we can foresee looming on the horizon next year with the difference between the Democratic and Republican-controlled bodies of the Congress that could impact some of the key requirements for an adequate defense strategy, most especially the funding for that. And uh, this means that we're going to have some extra challenges. So uh, I'm delighted to be able to speak to that today. But it is uh, an interesting experience to have been a member of the commission for a little over a year. And then uh, about the time we were done with our work, but before I had actually signed it, they were still doing the editing on it, uh, being appointed to the Senate and serving on Senator McCain's committee, uh, to be able to evaluate the report that I helped to write. I gave it an A+. Plus. Um, we had an excellent hearing with the two chairmen, uh, Ambassador uh, uh, Eric Edelman and uh, former uh, uh, Navy Admiral uh, Gary Ruffhead. They both testified before the Armed Services Committee in the Senate, and it was a, a full hearing. It took a long time. Everybody was most interested, and I was impressed that the members of the committee uh, seemed very committed to uh, understanding the commission report and apparently supporting its conclusions. Now, originally the idea was to advise the secretary in the creation of the strategy, but we got started so late that he had already developed his strategy, and therefore we, with his concurrence, uh, agreed to basically give it a red team type look and critique the national defense strategy. Uh, during the time of our deliberations, uh, the uh, nuclear posture review uh, was also accomplished. The Missile Defense Review was not. So we basically uh, incorporated the NPR into our report and concurred with its uh, recommendations and findings. Uh, we didn't say as much about missile defense because that had not yet been made public, still not public as far as I know. Um, so the, uh, the commission then uh, concluded its work about three or four weeks ago, submitted it to the House and Senate committees, and we've been uh, discussing it publicly and uh, before the Congress since then. And I really appreciate the opportunity uh, for the American people to hear about this uh, since they are the ones who are going to have to give the cover to the political leaders to do the important things that are necessary in order to ensure that we have an adequate defense going forward. The first finding of the commission was to concur in the reprioritization of our national uh, defense strategy to focus on the two peer competitors now, Russia and China. In the last uh, 10 years or so, we had focused, understandably, on terrorism and to some extent on Iran and North Korea. Those three elements were relegated to a three through five position, uh, as it were. This uh, commission acknowledged the Secretary's um, uh, arguments that, given the existential nature of uh, a potential war with either Russia or, or China, uh, the United States had to begin to, uh, ag had to again focus on those two potential adversaries in the construction of our strategy, uh, our operational concepts, and all of the 
necessary uh, equipment and other expenditures necessary to uh, to support the, the strategy. In the past, as you know, we had a Cold War strategy that was primarily focused on Russia. And with the equipment that we had, we were able to have a very successful operation kicking Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait and subsequently fight in an environment where we could use a lot of that equipment, though we found out very early on that we also had to make some adaptations because uh, the other side didn't, uh, didn't fight the way that we had been used to. And so we've been adapting ever since to that uh, Middle East environment. But what we understand now is that if we were to face either China or Russia, we're going to have to have very different equipment and very different operational uh, uh, concepts. The strategy, it was the, so the prioritization we fully agreed with. And essentially we said the strategy is workable, but only if it's adequately resourced. And here we had some concerns with the assumptions of the Defense Department that we could make do with what they expected to get, and we could, for example, uh, engage in a war with one of our peer adversaries and hold the other one at bay until we'd handled the first one, and then we'd turn and handle the second one. Sounds a little like Nazi Germany and Japan during the Second World War. That's not going to work anymore. I mean, for a lot of different reasons. If you stop and think about uh, the resources that you would move from Europe, for example, that would be available to hopefully deter uh, aggression by Russia to the South China Sea, um, you know, tanks are not needed in the South China Sea. Likewise, our submarines or aircraft carriers to deal with a Chinese threat are not exactly transferable to uh, the plains of Europe to deal with a Russian uh, engagement there. In addition to that, our logistical capability, our transport capability, is, is woefully uh, inadequate, both in terms of sea lift and airlift. So we found that the concept here, that we would move things around, we'd move everything out of the Middle East, we'd move things from one theater to another, and therefore we could deal with one of these threats, even though we didn't have all of the stuff we need in the place we needed to begin with, was a flawed strategy, unless, again, it was adequately uh, resourced. Uh, this is not to detract from the Secretary's planning or the commitment of either the civilian or military folks uh, in the Pentagon or in the military to uh, plan uh, against a potential attack because they will do whatever they're told to do with whatever they've got to do it with. The question is, will they succeed? And we concluded that the prospect of a conflict with today's Russia or China or tomorrow's China could be so devastating that it would be unthinkable. I mean, it would quickly escalate, as you can imagine, or could quickly escalate to a nuclear conflagration. That, Again, that's unthinkable. But the problem is that the other side gets to decide whether it's deterred. We don't get to decide that we have an adequate deterrent. And the whole concept here is about deterrence. It's not about fighting and winning a war, except to the extent that you have to be able to show you can do that in order to deter. So we went back to basic concepts of deterrence. We understand what Russia and China understand about us. They've gone to school on our tactics as well as our equipment over the last 20 years, and they've really done a lot of good planning on how to deal with it. And the technology that both Russia and China can employ today is incredible. It's phenomenal. Without getting into a lot of detail here, um, our briefing suggested that the findings, and I'll just quote a couple of them here in just a second, are not uh, over the top. They, they sound pretty dire, but given the technology that currently, and I was just in a classified briefing this afternoon about the sea power and underwater detection capabilities of Russia and China, and again, this is a big change from when I was in the Senate six years ago. And we clearly had dominance, and we don't anymore. Let me just um, say that the, that the commission concluded that were there a war, uh, we would be in risk, at risk of losing that war. Now, this is the first time a commission like this has ever said that in the past. It said, well, we would, we'd lose a lot in manpower and capital assets and the like, but we'd rely on the great industrial base of the United States to recapitalize, and just like we did in World War II, we'd go back in and and kick them out of wherever they had taken over, and we'd ultimately prevail. Well, we don't have the time nor the industrial base to do that right now, 
And just think about it again. If you got in a conflict with one of those two powers, you could quickly get into a nuclear escalation. Now, this is important because the doctrine of the Russians now is precisely to use tactical nuclear weapons in what's been called escalate to de-escalate. In other words, to fairly early on in on the battlefield, use nuclear weapons to achieve a conventional uh, tactical uh, objective uh, on the battlefield and send a message to the United States that um, it's not in our interest to challenge any further. Now nuclear weapons have been used and we wouldn't want to move up that escalation ladder by the use of our own nuclear weapons. I'm going to move, a, move ahead just because I got ahead of myself here in describing something. One of the reasons for the Defense Department's strong support for and recommendation for the development of a low-yield nuclear weapon is to deal with this new phenomenon uh, of, of the Russians uh, using, and by the way, they've got 10 times more tactical nuclear weapons than we do, probably more than that. But it is within their doctrine to use these weapons on a battlefield to take the objective, A, but B, to also send the message that we're now in a nuclear state. And they understand that for us to escalate beyond that with nuclear weapons would require the use of weapons which have, there's, there's no middle ground, which have an enormous destructive potential because of the Cold War mutually assured destruction uh, philosophy that both the Soviet Union and the United States were, were operating under in which we would need X number of nuclear warheads to destroy every major city, every major industrial bit of capacity, and all of the major military targets within the Soviet Union. That required great big, uh, or at least very destructive weapons, not great big weapons, but very destructive weapons. Well, you can't uh, easily respond to a tactical battlefield use of a weapon with that kind of nuclear weapon, yet that's what our deterrent is today. You see there's something missing in the middle. And that's one reason why the Pentagon would like to have some flexibility and have a lower yield uh, capacity. This would have a deterrent effect, we believe, on uh, actions should the Russians decide uh, and miscalculate in our view, but should they uh, make a calculation that they could achieve an objective without um, uh, being hurt by the pushback, uh, from the United States or our NATO allies. Here's one of the quotations from, from the report. The U.S. military could suffer unacceptably high casualties and loss of major capital assets in its next conflict. It might struggle to win or perhaps lose a war against China or Russia. The United States is particularly at risk of being overwhelmed should its military forces be required to fight on two or more fronts simultaneously. End of quote. And many have read this to say, well, so we're now agreeing to a one-war strategy. We Remember, it used to be two and a half, and then it was two. And the idea here is that potentially, while we are uh, fighting one enemy, the other could somehow be deterred from acting. Now, think about it for a moment. Um, never mind that Russia and China are, are working together much more closely than they have in the recent past. They've even engaged in um, uh, military exercises together. Uh, exercising, by the way, nuclear capabilities as well as conventional. But it may may well be the case that while uh, we're engaged in dealing with one of them, the other would seize the opportunity as uh, simply that, an opportunity to try to make gains in their own region while we're engaged elsewhere. So they wouldn't even, even have to be working in concert. And we don't think we have the capability right now to deal with both simultaneously. Moreover, uh, some people on the commission were concerned about the fact that the prioritization of the two peer competitors means, and the way the Defense Department uh, uh, strategy reads, uh, it means that we would have some risk in the Middle East. In other words, we're going to do something and understand that we're going to bear a risk in some other theater, and that's fighting against terrorists or potentially elsewhere in the Middle East. Now, for those who have struggled in the Middle East, that's not a very, um, you know, one can't have very sanguine thoughts about that. Uh, well, we'll deal with you guys. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll take a risk there. Okay, well, what, what risk are we going to take? In the first place, are we going to pull out of anything there as a matter of strategy? I think most of the people on the commission would say, well, we shouldn't. 
And secondly, what if circumstances required that we do so? What would then happen? There would be losses in American interests, to be sure. Uh, and again, the, the idea that, well, we'll come back and clean that up later, uh, we may have seen in the World War II movies, but that could well not be the situation today, especially when we rely upon so many others in the world to make the things that we rely on. Uh, our industrial base is not what it used to be, and our tech transfer to places like China um, is far much uh, greater than it, than it should be. So uh, we got supply chain problems is the bottom line there. Now, in, in addition to this general overview, uh, we focused on some very specific things, and I'll just try to go through some of those. One is readiness. You've seen the reports of the aircraft that uh, had accidents, the, the accidents at sea, and uh, to some degree these are blamed on a lack of uh, adequate uh, flying time or sailing time uh, or resources to... Uh, properly train the people before they go out to sea, for example. And this happens on land as well. Uh, we clearly aren't getting the training, the flying hours and so on that we used to, nor are we able to maintain our uh, equipment like we used to. A lot of it is wearing out. It's been used in the Middle East, and it is worn out. And unfortunately, when you have a first dollar to spend from the Congress and your military leader, what are you going to spend it on? You're going to try to spend it on something relating to Readiness, the thing that we need right this minute, right now. And yet the commission recognized throughout that we really need to be in a position to put that first dollar toward new technology because the new technology is always the last thing that tends to get funded because it's kind of the furthest down the road, not the most immediate need. And yet that's where some of the first dollars ought to go, and we'll get into that when I talk about the specific amount of money uh, here in, in just a minute. The... The size of our military, as you know, is about the size, in some degrees, less than it was prior to 1940 when we were attacked. Uh, we couldn't deter aggression then, and the question is always back to the question, could we deter aggression today with an enemy that uh, was susceptible to miscalculation? One thinks of a Vladimir Putin when one thinks of that, for example, and potentially some Chinese leaders on, on down the road. The, uh, the bottom line conclusion of the report was that Congress must do three things with respect to providing resources that could make up for the losses that we've suffered so far. The first is that the top line number is going to have to be increased. In order to effectuate the last Obama plan, let alone the plan announced, the 20-year plan announced by Secretary Gates, uh, the Pentagon has said we would need 3 to 5% real growth, in other words, above inflation, in the top line every year. Uh, the second thing is the way the money is provided. It's been, in many years, doled out through continuing resolutions, which is a very poor way to provide funding for programs that involve large, long lead time acquisitions. Um, it's essentially saying with your household budget, uh, each year, about halfway through the year, uh, this is great planning, well, you can spend the same amount of money you spent last year on the same things you spent it on last year. Okay, last year you had to buy a new refrigerator, so now you're going to buy a new refrigerator this year? It, it doesn't make sense for the military which has to think about some really big programs coming down the line that they've got to plan for. And when you're dealing with defense contractors that have subcontractors and they've got to get people, uh, a workforce put together and so on, and it's this herky-jerky kind of movement, it's very inefficient. The third thing is the uncertainty of sequestration as a result of the Budget Act um, is criticized by everybody, and we took our turn whacking at it as well. But the fact is, it's the law today. And it'll be the law for the next two years. And unless Congress very quickly takes the sequestration provision out of the Budget Act, we're going to be stuck with that for the next two years. And that means that if Congress doesn't meet its goals, half of the uh, whacking that has to occur in order to get down to those goals has to come right out of the Defense Department. It's an across-the-board uh, funding cut. So all three of those things, in, in our view, needed to be reformed.
to give you an idea of the of the dollar levels because that's in the news even today with the president uh, now seeming to reverse his earlier comments about a seven hundred billion dollar defense budget next year talking about seven hundred and fifty dollars uh, dollars billion dollars um, the uh, result of the enactment of the Budget Control Act of 2011 in, in constant dollar spending comparisons uh, using 2018 dollars fell from $794 billion in fiscal year 210. I remember that's in uh, dollars as of today, 2018 dollars. Excuse me. In 2018, year 2018 dollars, the spending has fallen from $794 billion to, in 2010 to $586 billion, in, and that's just through fiscal year uh, 2015. So in, if you want to make a comparison, it's the fastest drawdown since the uh, uh, years following the Korean War. And again, using these constant dollars, we're really at historic lows. Between 2012 and 2019, DOD will have sustained a $539 billion cut over the budget plan produced by Secretary Gates in 2010. That was the, his 10-year plan and, and then 20-year plan from then. So here's our 20-year plan, um, already a half a trillion dollars short halfway through the plan, based upon what he said that we would need. And if defense spending continues at the planned rate through uh, 2021, 20, uh, it would take two decades to reverse all of the Budget Act cuts alone, let alone grow at any rate that would, be, that would enable us to provide for the resources that we need. So we've got to change the top line. And at $733 billion, which is what people had talked about, that's not even, I, I think that's like a 2.6% or thereabouts increase. So that's not even getting to 3 to 5% above inflation. So it needs to be 750, not as a starting negotiating point, but as the amount that's spent, and not to have part of that spent on the wall or anything else. Unfortunately, in the United States, about 70% of our spending is on personnel. I, I shouldn't say unfortunately, but that's just the fact. And when people compare Russia or Chinese spending or other countries spending on the military to the United States, they're comparing apples and oranges. We've got a volunteer force that we try to take very good care of in terms of the salary, in terms of the health care, how we take care of their families, their pensions, and the like. And we're always trying to do more. But if that's 70%, then you can't compare it to the Russians and Chinese, which have an all-conscript military, and they pay them $1.80 a year or whatever it is. And they also combine their military and industrial bases into one big conglomeration. And it's, it's impossible to be able to parse that out in terms of what's actually spent on military uh, spending and compare that to the U.S. military spending. So for people who say, well, why do we need to spend more? We spend 10 times as much as anybody else. Challenge that and get down to the actual numbers as to what we spend and for what compared to what our potential adversaries spend. Uh, just to conclude this point, in 2017, both Secretary Mattis and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, General Dunford, testified that the Pentagon required this sustained 3 to 5% annual budgetary growth, that is to say above inflation, just to execute the defense strategy inherited from the previous administration. So that's not even the strategy that, that Secretary Mattis has called for or that the Defense Commission agreed with. Some people say, well, they've had this last two years where they really... Uh, and unfortunately, you've heard the president say we've rebuilt the military uh, with one year spending in the past and one more year to come. All that did really was staunch the, the flow of blood. And it helps to some extent with readiness. But it doesn't begin to rebuild much of anything. I'll, I'll talk about some of the things we need to rebuild uh, in just a moment. Let me just mention a couple other statistics because they'll be more meaningful here to the Marine Corps, for example. Uh, between 2012 and 2021, the Pentagon's procurement account and operations and maintenance account will have sustained 16 and 9% funding cuts, respectively. So uh, that's what we've been dealing with just in this immediate past decade. From 2012 to 2017, the military lost $200 billion in modernization spending. Um, 
again, I, I, I could quote continually from the report here, but I think you, you, you get the idea. Now let me talk about another specific thing. I just mentioned readiness, but one of our big bills has to do with the modernization of our strategic deterrent, our, our nuclear weapons, the nuclear weapons complex, and the delivery platforms, the so-called triad. We've been very negligent. After the Cold War ended, uh, we breathed a sigh of relief and kind of figured, okay, that's over. We don't have to worry about the nuclear weapons anymore. Well, we've seen China and Russia spending a lot of time, effort, and money on the modernization of their nuclear forces and their delivery platforms. They've been testing. They've been producing new nuclear weapons. We don't even have a production capacity. Do you all appreciate that? We can't produce nuclear weapons in the United States today except one at a time in a laboratory. We don't have a production capacity as do China and Russia, and by the way, some other countries in the world. So we've got to modernize our research and production capacity, our national labs, uh, our uranium uh, uh, facility at Oak Ridge, I visited some time ago, and the roof is falling in. I mean, this is where our uranium is. We, we haven't even figured out how we're going to build a new uh, plutonium production uh, well, we, we finally figured it out. We're going to move it to South Carolina in what was the the old MOX uh, fuel uh, extraction uh, facility. Uh, but all of that takes a huge amount of time and a lot of money. So the first thing we've got to do is is modernize our laboratories, and that also means the people. And the biggest component here is the people who serve in the laboratories. Uh, one of the last people to design and test and build and get deployed a nuclear warhead is Dr. Steve Younger, now the director at, at um, Sandia Laboratory. We don't have very many of those guys left. And what they have found is that as they begin to take the existing weapons apart and put them back together, nobody knows how to do that because there's nobody around yet at, at this point that, that used to do that. And things change over time. So computers are fine, and computer simulations are fine, but actually doing it provides an expertise that we're going to need in the future. The Chinese and Russians are doing it every day. So the first part is our laboratories. The second part is the life extension programs of the nuclear weapons themselves. And these have been neglected so long that that the, the programs are, are late, they are behind schedule in some cases. Uh, they've done all the workarounds they can to try to uh, manage the situation. And uh, while we have the best weapons that were ever built, they were designed back in the uh, 70s, built maybe in the 80s. And um, uh, nothing. we haven't done testing since 1991, as many of you know. So when we extend the life of these weapons, I mean, I've got a... A, on my desk, a, uh, a vacuum tube that was taken out of front of one of these weapons. Now they're putting circuit boards in. Good, modern technology. But that, that's where we are. These weapons need to be modernized. And uh, the Pentagon also uh, sees the need for a couple of new things, like a sea-based cruise missile uh, and a uh, lower-yield nuclear warhead. So that will be part of our weapons program. And then third, you've got the platforms. All of these things are coming to, to head at the same time. We've got to build a new submarine force, a new missile force, and a new bomber force. All three at the same time. Now, we've decided to do that. Part of the negotiation over the New START Treaty in 2010 was, if you'll commit to the program of work for the labs, the weapons, and the platforms, then, at least in my case, I wouldn't uh, try to defeat the New START Treaty. Uh, and that deal was made by the Obama administration and has more or less been carried out by that administration and the Congress, uh, although we are behind in, in several things. So enough on, on nuclear uh, modernization and the strategic deterrent, but uh, this, everybody in the Pentagon will tell you, or at least the Secretary of Defense will tell you, this is the most important uh, priority because it is the priority that deals with the existential threat to the United States. Uh, our commission report concludes missile, well, okay, next thing, missile defense. Missile defense is a component of deterrence. And even though the uh, missile defense report has not come out yet, 
the commission concluded that it was an extremely important part of our overall deterrent. Missile defense can complicate the adversary's planning uh, of an attack in ways that ultimately can cause them to back off, concluding that the costs are not worth the potential gains. And yet we've allowed missile defense to basically fall by the side after the collapse of the Soviet Union. President Reagan's concept of uh, a strategic defense initiative uh, was pursued for a while, but not to the point of deploying very much. Yet a lot of research uh, continues to be done and exists, and some of that has been put in our ground-based interceptor component, which is primarily uh, there to defeat the North Korean uh, challenge. But at, at its most, it'll be 44 uh, interceptor missiles, 44. And the number is classified, but as to the number of shots you need to take against any incoming missile, just assume for the sake of argument that it's, uh, pick a number, three, okay, or four. four. Four makes the math easy. That way you could defeat, you could defeat 11 missiles, theoretically. And uh, for a, company, a country that's building a lot of missiles quickly, that's not, that's not very many. And that doesn't leave you anything against Russia, China, Iran, or anybody else. And that's the ground-based system. Now, fortunately, we also have the Aegis system, and we have THAAD and Patriot for more intermediate range um, that have capabilities. But we do not have, and we never have had, the strategic defense that President Reagan contemplated in announcing the Strategic Defense Initiative. Uh, brilliant pebbles, the space-based um, group of satellites that could zoom down and hit a, a missile in its uh, launch phase, in, in its ascent phase, for example, or at least in mid-course before all the decoys and, and warheads are released. That was never built. And yet now with technology that's evolved, um, the expense of doing in that, that and the capability uh, would certainly permit it to be accomplished. And that would be an incredibly effective way to complicate an offensive plan by, say, Russia or, or China. At a minimum, we've got to immediately get at the job of getting more sensors in space. This is part of the asymmetric war that the Russians and Chinese have figured out how to uh, run against us, to blind us because we rely so much in space right now. We have to harden our assets. We've got to get new assets up there so that we can accomplish not only our warfighting aims, but also all of the other things in our civilian society that require uh, space. I haven't even mentioned cyber. I'll just say one thing about that. What we concluded there is that it's not that we lack capability, but we lack the legal regime and the uh, administration policy and strategy to deter cyber attacks. The president recently uh, issued a new directive which eliminates some of the roadblocks, which is a euphemism for many layers of lawyers having to review and approve things, uh, so that potential uh, adversaries using cyber against both our military and our civilian uh, society understand that um, if they do that, there are very likely going to be repercussions, maybe in the cyber world, maybe some other kind of repercussions. In other words, we need to deter cyber attack, not just sit there and try to only depend, uh, defend against it. And um, I, I think that's one of the more important recommendations of the commission that's not particularly gone uh, uh, noticed. Final thing I'll mention uh, is uh, a phenomenon of, uh, of modern uh, international relations as well as the type of modern warfare that both Russia is actively engaged in and to some extent China. We're engaged in wars right now with both Russia and China. They're just not hot wars. They're wars that involve hybrid kinds of activity, the little green men, the cyber attacks, um, the kind of uh, activity that's gone on in the Crimea, in eastern Ukraine, uh, in the South China Sea, uh, where both China and Russia keep pushing until they meet resistance and they back off a little bit until they can push some more. And they're just basically trying to gauge how much they can take before there's pushback that actually harms them. Somebody compared Putin to the burglar in the hotel that goes down the hotel hallway, pushing on every door until he finds one that opens and goes in and steals all the stuff. Um, this is a new kind of, uh, I mean, it's not new. I mean, Hitler did it before World War II. 
But it's the kind of thing that Russia is now really getting good at, and the Chinese are paying attention. And the United States has to find ways to deter that kind of activity, short of the you know, direct conflict with the United States. Uh, and uh, that is part and parcel also of the, of the cyber uh, kind of activity. And that leads to the final point, and that is we have a potential advantage here that neither Russia nor China have, but they're both working on and that's allies. Uh, right now we have allies in the form of NATO and, and others who will help us and who we will help to deter aggression. <clears throat> and they can be very useful. And I think in a crunch would be. Uh, but both Russia and China understanding that are doing everything they can to undermine or undercut. You can see what Russia is doing in Europe to try to un undercut us there. And in some cases, we're our own worst enemy. We get out of the Trans-Pacific uh, uh, trade deal. We uh, hammer our allies about not doing this or that or the other thing. And um, you can understand how they're not particularly happy about that. Now, is the criticism valid? Yeah. But on the other hand, there is a diplomatic way to do things and, uh, and another way. And I, I really think that while we've gotten people's attention, that we may have done so at a price that um, is a little too steep in terms of the kind of international agreements and cooperation that we need in order to have the advantage of a large group of allies willing to help us deter aggression around the world. Boy, that's a, I don't know how many minutes I went there, but the bottom line is we, we tried to look at it all, and we were very supportive of uh, Secretary Mattis generally, but we're skeptical that without adequate support from the Congress, that they'll be able to uh, achieve the objectives in a way that assures the American people that we'll continue to have peace because we can deter aggression. And that's what we have to be able to do. There can't be any doubt about it. That puts the ball squarely in the Congress's court. And as I said, with Democratic control of the House now, with the House uh, chairman who's already expressed himself with regard to some of these matters, it's, it's going to be difficult. And it's going to take groups like Heritage, um, other citizens who are aware of the issues here to understand the issues, to help educate their fellow citizens, and as I said, to provide the support for the members of Congress who are willing to stick their neck out here and support this kind of defense spending um, in order for that to occur. Members of Congress uh, are pretty good about representing their constituents. They've always got their finger in the air. They want to know which way the wind is blowing. And if their constituents are, uh, are saying the most important thing in the world is to get a handle on our deficit, I used to say that a lot, not quite those words. But if, if that's what people say, and then you say, well, what about defense? Well, it can take its lumps just like everybody else. Then we've lost. It's not defense spending that's the problem with regard to our deficit. That's not causing, you, you heard the statistics, we're actually down compared to what we would have been. Uh, it's the entitlement spending that's getting us into trouble. So unless we're willing to confront that, um, we may be given this Hobson's choice of having a larger deficit um, uh, at the same time that we need to in, increase our defense spending. But for my money, uh, there's one first obligation of government, and that's to keep the people safe. And that means we've got to have an adequate defense. I think the strategy is sound, the prioritization is sound, but only if it's adequately financed by the government. And that means the administration and the Congress. So that's our charge. And I'm glad to have at least been back in the Senate uh, to validate, to give an A-plus to that uh, commission report <laughs> and to urge my colleagues to pay a lot of attention to it next year when these tough funding decisions are going to come before us. Thank you very much for your attention. I appreciate it. Do you want to handle the Yeah, <laughs> sir. Um, could you talk a bit about INF, where the administration is right now, what you think their strategy is, 
and why the issue is important when we look at extended deterrence and our deterrent posture with with Russia and China. Yes, thank you for the question. I just met with John Bolton this morning, and uh, he explained that the 60-day delay in in invoking the process of INF, which is a six-month process to actually have left INF Treaty. There's a six-month period of time there. But Angela Merkel uh, asked for a 60-day delay in that, see if some of the Europeans could talk Russia out of uh, uh, its violation, uh, which won't work. Uh, The president agreed to do that. So it's going to take us 60 days longer than it otherwise would have, but uh, the price uh, to pay perhaps is worth it for uh, a strong NATO uh, consensus. And we appear to have more or less a consensus today with our European allies that because of the Russian violation, we've got to get out. Now, don't let anybody ever tell you that uh, it's not clear whether they have been in violation. I don't have the material with me, but um, everybody who's looked at it, the commission that's supposed to be verifying it, the United States Defense Department, State Department, our intelligence community, NATO, in fact, the General Secretary of NATO just about three weeks ago gave a big speech about it, He said, there's no question the Russians are in violation. The United States is not in violation, and the Russians need to stop it. They're not going to stop it. Putin has, the violation, by the way, is in testing and building and now deploying, I don't know the number of battalions that they've deployed, but it's more than one, uh, of a cruise missile that has a uh, capability to fly between 500 and 5,500 kilometers. That's forbidden by the Intermediate Range uh, Missile uh, Treaty. So um, that's a very tough weapon to defend against. It doesn't get up very, uh, I mean, it gets up very quickly, and uh, the combination of the inability to uh, track it and follow it as easily as a ballistic missile uh, that you can ordinarily do uh, makes defenses against it very difficult. So it's a very handy weapon to have if you're in the European theater. And... Uh, this it's kind of the same old fight that we had uh, before the treaty was entered into in the first place with the Russians introducing intermediate-range missiles into Europe. The United States fought against it in the in the uh, in in the uh, venue of public opinion, and finally decided we're going to build a Pershing missile. So we've got we've got one. If you want to put yours in there, fine. We've got ours too. Now we're matched. And as soon as we did that then the the Soviets came to the table and said, okay, we'll agree to a treaty that bans them. And then they started violating it at least as of 2014 and and ever since then. We've called them on it. Uh, We've even given them intelligence of ours that probably compromises some of our sources and methods to demonstrate how we know they're in violation, and uh, we've got very precise information on it. Um, but they, they continue to sort of deny it and say, but you're doing it too, and we're not doing anything in violation. So it makes absolutely no sense. When China has this capability and has deployed it, other countries can have it. Russia has it. The United States is the only country in the world that doesn't. We're bound by the treaty, so it makes no sense to stay in that treaty. The implications are, I would say, nothing with respect to arms control except to tell you all you need to know about Russia when they asked to extend the New START Treaty in, 19, in, in 2021. Uh, I mean, one of the conditions for a treaty is that you need to know your partner is in compliance or will always be in compliance. And when you know this partner is not, then to have another bilateral treaty that says that both Russia and the United States will keep our nuclear warheads at a certain level and our launchers at a certain level, uh, while nobody else in the world is bound by that, it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Nonetheless, the question about extending New START will come before the administration in the not-too-distant future. I don't think the administration is in any hurry to begin that process because, first of all, we'd need to sort out this this INF violation. But uh, if you can't uh, trust a treaty partner to be in compliance, then it's time to get out and uh, not to uh, continue to rely upon their good faith in the future. I think that's the administration's position. I know it's mine. Senator Hyde, Bob Lennox, um, retired Army, and now with General Dynamics. Thanks for your comments tonight. Um, very eloquent. Uh, we really appreciate it in your service on both the Commission and in the Senate again. I had a question about capacity. You talked about it a little bit earlier, um, and I thought very well, but the services find themselves in dilemmas like 
um, the choice between increasing the size, 355 ship Navy, or modernization with the most modern carriers, and, and then, um, or, or just the readiness. So they find themselves in their own Hobbesian choice there. And I wonder if, you, if the Commission thought at all about that dilemma that they find themselves in. Yes, indeed. And by the way, I'll make a plug for Raytheon, uh, Tucson, Arizona. <laughs> Great tomahawks. Um, yes, we did. Uh, we, Mark Esper, for example, came to the Secretary of the Army. And uh, we asked him, okay, what do you need? He said, well, <clears throat> I'm doing a bottom-up review, so I can't tell you exactly how many, uh, how, what my end strength should be, but I know it needs to be more than it is. And he said, what I'm going to do is build it up from the bottom up, and I know that one of the first things I need is a longer range capacity and more lethality. The Chinese and Russians both have, in different ways, capacities to fight at longer distances than we do with really accurate modern weapons that can deliver a lot of, uh, of uh, weapon on, on the ground. Uh, in the case of the Chinese, it's a lot of uh, 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 it's weapons that can keep us having to stand off further and further and further away from the Chinese coast. In the case of the Russians, they don't want to get into an artillery duel with him because they can outrange you. So he knows that for his troops, he's got to he's got to invest in technology for his troops to really be effective on the battlefield and protect themselves. Uh, and he also needs more of them. And what he's trying to do is be as careful as possible to put all those things together and come up with the bottom line. The commission debated for a long time about whether to make specific recommendations to the Armed Services Committee, which would have liked to have those recommendations about particular uh, weapons, uh, sizes, and, and all of that. We finally decided that we weren't going to do that because we criticized the Defense Department to some extent for not using analytics uh, as uh, robustly as they might have to figure out themselves everything that they needed. They kind of made some assumptions about what it was. Uh, but uh, so, we, so we then chose not to do it because clearly we didn't have nearly what the capacity the Defense Department did. So we kind of used the Mark Esper approach to things we know we don't have enough, but we can't tell you exactly how much we need until we do the whole review bottom-up. And I think that's a good approach, um, and it illustrates the point again that our enemies have gained some advantages on us, and it's not just in the air or at sea, it's also on the land. Larry Taylor, retired Marine Corps. Yes, sir. <clears throat> Trying to get into the heads of Gerasimov uh, and uh, Putin and... Um, uh, given our speaking of treaty obligations, what do you suppose they're thinking about uh, looking at how we reacted in Ukraine and Georgia? Uh, why don't we try the same thing in one, of, one or more of the Baltic states? What do you suppose they think about that? What would we do and what should we do? You mean offensively or... or in response to uh, oh. a Russian move there? Well, this, this was part of... There's a... There's a I think a, an unclassified, I know there's a classified version of a RAND study. Have, have some of you seen that, perhaps? Pardon? There is an unclassified. Yeah, I thought so. Uh, and, and what is that called? I can't recall the exact time. Basically, uh, there are a couple different studies. One is predicated on an attack by Russia into the Baltic states, and the other is a, an attack on Taiwan by the Chinese. And um, I, I believe, just suffice it to say that uh, the conclusion is that both attacks would be successful. The territory would be occupied, and it would be very difficult for the United States to dig them out. That would be a very costly proposition. And so the question then is, well, how do you deter the attack? And that's the point of the commission report to say, unless you can show them, and they get to decide whether they're deterred or not, unless you can show them that the cost exceeds, uh, that the cost of the operation exceeds what they put into it, um, they may be tempted someday to do it. You can't let an enemy uh, misunderstand your will or your capabilities. That's why they have to be aware of some of these things. And you just can't let them miscalculate because of the quickness with which nuclear weapons might be brought into the equation. And that becomes um, just almost unthinkable, as I said. Pat Tal, Congressional Research Service. I, you disappointed me at the SASC hearing a couple weeks ago. I was hoping that you were going to sit in the dais 
and ask Eric and the Admiral a question, then run around and sit at the table. <laughs> and answer. Well, actually, I did that on one. I'll get to that in a minute. The, the, uh, General Bob Scales uh, has uh, cited some historical research looking at uh, warfare over centuries. And, and the, the school argues that there are pendulum swings, and, and at certain times, the fundamental technology available is, favors the offense or favors the defense. The, the two scenarios that we could lose are both ones in which we have to project vast amounts of military power, thousands of miles across oceans, and the bad guys can walk to work. Right. Did the commission give any thought or listen to any, any of the arguments that perhaps the fundamental technologies of, of combat at this, we're in an era now that is so defense dominant that you know the, the price of a conventional action in either of those two scenarios just might be way, way, way off the scale. Did, did, did you address that, fun, that, that kind of question? Yeah. Uh, Andy Krepinevich, who I'm sure you know, uh, talked to us a lot about concepts of deterrence. And a lot of that has to do with the imbalance in power and the fact that they walk to work, like you say, and we've got to project power over vast distances. And as I said before, we don't necessarily have the ability to do that now uh, on the, in the real time that we would need to do it in either of those uh, scenarios. Yes, we talked a lot about that. And it's one of the reasons that we said we've got to get better at working with our allies to be sure that we can deter aggression, at working to we, – we, we didn't talk about forward positioning things, but we did talk about having our capabilities more forward than they are today and operational concepts that don't necessarily – require us to dig the enemy out of a position that they've already gained a, a, a foothold in, but to prevent it in the first place. And th that's where some of the argument, not argument, but where some of the disagreement with the strategy of the Secretary came into play. The Secretary is pretty confident that they can, through various concepts, um, prevent that original takeover. Uh, we weren't convinced of that. Uh, just because of this imbalance. But by the way, we have to be really careful about, um, I mean, I'd rather be on offense than defense. But on the other hand, uh, defense can be really, really important. And you think about uh, missile defense, for example. It would be a total fallacy to compare the cost of a missile being launched with the cost of the system, the radars and tracking and the satellites and the missile that has to go up and intercept it. Um, as the equation. That's not the equation at all. What's the value of the territory you're protecting? Well, if it's the homeland, <laughs> that's pretty valuable to me. And so, uh, and also deterring an attack in the first instance and avoiding um, a nuclear war. So uh, anything that you can do defensively that complicates the offensive planning of the opposition, even though it may not itself be the be-all and end-all defense, can be useful. Make the enemy pay uh, for the, uh, a, a cost for the attack that he's going to engage in. And there are a lot of other things. We're, we, we talk about the industrial capacity, the use of our allies, uh, the use of cyber, hybrid warfare in our part as well, and some other technologies that I haven't talked about here, but uh, which uh, all three nations are spending a lot of time and effort looking at. One thing John McCain wanted to do as chairman of the committee next year was to have a series of hearings on the hypersonics and on quantum computing and artificial intelligence, all kinds of things that can be brought to bear in the military and, and are being brought to bear right now in military planning. And I'm hoping that uh, next year that uh, a lot of that will be not only in a classified setting but brought to the American people's attention through, uh, through public hearings so they can see what could be available if we had the ability to fund it adequately. Let me just thank all of you for your attention and, and plead with you to... Uh, uh, to give this your attention and to support those who are supportive of the idea about putting uh, our national defense first and being able to deter conflict from would-be adversaries. I would appreciate it very much, and thank you again for your attention. Thank you, sir, very much. I'm going to give you a... Uh a heritage defense coin. I guarantee you the value is nominal, so you don't have to. Uh... Thank you all very much for attending.